first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in the New Testament. So 2 Corinthians, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And uh, we want you to follow along with us and read with us. So uh, Travis here will be happy to hand you one if you happen to need one. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll start reading at, at verse 1. It's been a wonderful study, and uh, it's going to continue to be a wonderful study for the next couple of weeks. So chapter 12, verse 1. All right. Father, we do ask that you would, once again, as we've just had a marvelous time of singing of your incredible grace and how your word never fails us, that we would be reminded of that in this study of your word. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be attentive and, Lord, that we would be uh, teachable. So bless this time in the study of your word. Uh, we just uh, pray that um, we would be encouraged and uplifted. Because I know that as we come into this place that there are thorny and difficult problems that all of us can face in life. And the Apostle Paul was no exception to that. And he was one that experienced it, but as he talks about his experience, that, Lord, we can gain, and we can be in, lifted up and edified and encouraged. And the words of the apostle here, know that they're coming from you, that we can be blessed and encouraged as well. So I pray that you touch every heart that's in this sanctuary and those sitting in the coffee shop and listening to this message. And Lord, that we would leave here just um, strengthened and rejoicing in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the apostle has been, Paul, talking about all the things that he endured in his ministry. We've seen that quite obviously as we've journeyed through this epistle of 2 Corinthians. And if you've been with us, we saw that in a previous chapter, chapter 11, that Paul, he writes about all the difficulties and the persecutions and the trials that he went through in his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ, bringing the gospel to them. And we know that Paul, he was dealing with those who were undermining his ministry. They were coming in and making fun of Paul and taking shots at him and, and saying that he's not really anything that is impressive or his speech is contemptible. And, and they were claiming to be super apostles. They were elevating themselves. And that's what Paul has been doing is addressing those who he says are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They are ministers of Satan is what they are because they will pass themselves on to be uh, ones who uh, are ministers of righteousness, but they're not. And even though Paul is talking about his ministry, remember he's reluctant to talk about his ministry. He, he does talk about his sufferings for Christ in chapter 11, and, and we've talked about that over the last couple weeks. And, and Paul's going to continue to talk about his ministry because he's boasting in his infirmities and what Christ has done in strengthening him during this time of difficulties. And so he'll continue to talk about his ministry as now we move into chapter 12 and verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So these most eminent apostles, as they were calling themselves, or, or super apostles, 
They were ones that were actually false, as I mentioned. And they were in the congregation of Corinth, and apparently they were boasting in visions and revelations of the Lord. And so Paul continues to confront them. He says, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. In other words, Paul says, I'm really not wanting to write about myself. I would rather much talk about Jesus. And that should be true for any of us, that we shouldn't be concerned about elevating ourselves and boasting about ourselves. We should be talking about Jesus and elevating him, exalting him. But the worldly thinking of the Corinthian Christians that they had because uh, of these, you know, just the way their culture was and the Greek culture and then these false apostles coming in, they would think very little of Paul, but also they would think very little of Jesus with these false apostles bringing another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And so that's why Paul is addressing them so directly here. And here they are, these, these guys, they're boasting about having visions and revelations, but what they're doing is they're presenting a false Jesus to you. And they're putting you in bondage with their legalistic rules and regulations. And these guys were boasting in their appearance and in their speech and visions and revelations that they were claiming to have. And Paul here is going to talk about his own vision and revelation, but he's reluctant to do it. Because again, he doesn't want the focus to be on him. And he now then describes his vision, verse 2. He writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So, he writes, I know someone 14 years ago that was caught up into heaven. So we're going to continue reading, seeing that Paul is talking about himself. And how will we know that? Well, we're going to see, as he tells us in verse 7. And we will see that when we get there. But 14 years ago, he, he writes, I was caught up into third heaven, whether I was actually out of the body or in the body, that is knocked unconscious, I don't know. But I was caught up into third heaven. Now, Paul here is not suggesting that there are different levels of heaven. That's what the Mormons believe. They believe that there are three heavens, and depending on how good of a Mormon you were, if you were worthy enough, then you could go to the third heaven, which they call celestial heaven. And, and from there, they actually believe in celestial heaven. There's seven levels in the third heaven, or celestial heaven, and you can continue to progress in heaven until you can become a god yourself, a god that can create a planet, and you can have all kinds of spirit children, and populate that planet. That's part of their doctrine. So the Mormons will look at this verse, and they will say, see, Paul talks about the third heaven. And we need to understand what Paul is talking about here. When he says third heaven, it is speaking about what we refer to as heaven, what we know as heaven, where God's throne is. And you see, the scripture does talk about and, and has the term of three heavens spoken of in the scriptures, but we need to get a clear understanding what is meant by that. The first heaven is our atmosphere. That is what uh, God referred to in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 20 reads, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So that's the first heaven, it's just speaking of our atmosphere. The second heaven is what we call outer space. 
God's word says so so many times. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 22. As numerous as the stars of heaven, Abraham was told by God to look at the stars of heaven, so shall your descendants be. And then there is the third heaven. And that's what Paul is referring to here. And it is where God's throne is. It is where John was caught up in Revelation chapter 4, that vision of, of heaven that he gives in that chapter. And so Paul says these so-called super apostles having visions and revelations that they like to boast about. Well, I know man 14 years ago. Paul had not mentioned this experience for 14 years. He was reluctant now even to talk about this. Some 14 years later. Now, scholars do disagree, you know, on when this experience happened in Paul's life. But I think that it very well could have happened, and it could be referring back to the time where he was stoned and left for dead there outside of Lystra. And we read about that in Acts chapter 14. As Paul was on his first missionary journey, the Jews came out, they stoned Paul, drug him out of the city, left him there for dead. And I think that it, perhaps it could be that experience that Paul is referring to here, that experience of Acts chapter 14. And we know as we read that the disciples gathered around Paul when they stoned him and left him for dead. And as he laid there, they thought he was dead. They were weeping for Paul. And then all of a sudden, his eyes began to flutter. He rose back up and he went on with his ministry. And Paul, he's absolutely amazing to, 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 to do that. And I think that it was in that time period when Paul was stoned that he says, I was caught up into heaven, paradise. Whether I was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And the words that I heard and the things that I saw were undescribable, unspeakable. It's not lawful for me to utter. In other words, it really is impossible for me to explain it to you. Just the beauty and the wonder. I can't describe it to you. Now, again, for 14 years, Paul had not even mentioned that we know of this experience. And now he is reluctantly mentioning it. He doesn't even say that it was him. He says, I know a man. And he heard and he saw things that no words can express what it was like. Now I know that one of the things that I'm going to get asked at the door, so I might as well answer it now, is people will say, well, what about, you know, the latest book that came out and talks about, you know, the one who, who was dead, clinically dead, and went to heaven and saw things, and they come back and they write a book. I'm not going to say what it is that they saw or they didn't see anything. We know that John in Revelation chapter 4, that he was caught up in the spirit, and he saw the throne of God, and he gives you know, some description of it. I know that as I filter everything through the word of God, here Paul is saying, I heard things, I saw things that no words can express. I do get suspicious when I hear foolish descriptions such as, I heard not long ago, I remember watching Christian TV. I got to stop watching Christian TV. But um, I was watching it, and one of the you know, faith teachers that has a big church boasting about this vision that he had of heaven. And as I was listening to it, he's talking about you know, the river of life and how him and Jesus were swimming in the river of life, and there's this beautiful furniture, and he saw Abraham with you know, a big hairy chest and a big golden chain, and, and there's all these animals, and I'm, I'm sitting there listening to this. The people are going, ooh, and ah, and all of this, and, and I'm going, really? <laughs> you know, lots of dogs and cats and, you know, and... And beautiful, you know, it was foolish talking is what it was. 
So I get very suspicious on things like that. All I can tell you is Paul wouldn't even talk about it. And, and he says that I couldn't even express it. And as he talks about it, and reluctantly so here in our text, he said, you sense there's nothing of self-glory, there's no self-promotion, no foolish description given. He says, it's not lawful for me to utter. It's beyond explanation. When Paul, when he was cut up in heaven, he, he woke up there outside of Lystra. He didn't say to the disciples, well, we, you know, you won't believe what just happened, and we're going to go on a speaking tour, and we're going to write a book and all this. He, he didn't say anything until this time 14 years later. And even now, he doesn't use his name directly. He doesn't describe you know, describe what he saw, but, but what he saw was awesome. It was glorious is what he's saying. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, we know that it tells us the sufferings, as Paul writes, at this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He, he just got through telling the Corinthians in chapter 4 that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And I believe that that's one of the reasons that Paul was able to continue in ministry, even though he went through such difficult and tremendous turmoil and persecution and affirmities in his life. He knew that heaven was real. He knew that heaven was real. And that this life is short. And he was determined, I'm going to continue to bring the gospel to others because I know what awaits. And, and the tribulations, the, the afflictions that we experience now is nothing to be compared to the glory that awaits us. It's so wonderful. I can't even express it. I can't even describe it. But I want others to go there. And that's why he was able to get up from that stoning and continue on. Because heaven was real for him. He had been there. And it's my prayer that heaven would be real in our hearts as well. And that's why the scripture says that we're to keep our focus on the eternal. That keep your eyes on the things above, as Paul writes to the Colossian believers, not on the things of this world. Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven is what we are to do. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. So may we always have an eternal perspective, knowing that life is short here and will soon pass away. But heaven is real and it's for eternity. So the priority is to be the eternal, is to be heaven, keeping our eyes on heaven and our heart towards heaven. He continues writing, verse 5, As such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my affirmities. It was glorious what happened to me, but I'm not going to, gl to glory in it, to, to bring attention and fame to me. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So you can sense kind of Paul's struggle here, can't you? The tension here. He doesn't really want to talk about these things. He didn't want people to put the emphasis on the messenger, only on the message. I didn't want to boast about this. I, I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what they see me to be or hear from me, the message that I have. I don't want to bring about some heavenly experience. I don't want you to judge me on how I lived, you know, or this vision or revelations. I want you to judge me on how I lived amongst you daily and how I lived my life and the words that I speak. That's what I want you to judge me on. You see, our human tendency can be 
to have people want to judge us by what heavenly vision, perhaps, that we had. That's what these false apostles were doing. And they were boasting in it. And Paul says, I, I don't like that. I want you to judge me on how I live my life and the words that I speak. Am I giving you the truth of God's word? Am I giving you the truth of the gospel? Am I living to really show you that Christ dwells in me, my life, that Christ is real to me? And that should be our motive. That should be our heart. We want people to see the reality of Jesus. We want to speak with truth and give the gospel to others and how we live our lives that people see the reality of Christ. We want to boast in Him, in the Lord. And verse 7, after he experienced this heavenly vision, he writes, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So after Paul talks about this out-of-world experience, literally, he talks about this thorn in the flesh. And he says and writes, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. It was a, a, a thorny problem for Paul. It was troubling. So the question is, uh, among scholars, is what is this thorn in the flesh, identified as a messenger of Satan to buffet me? Some have suggested that it was a demon that was hassling Paul. Others say that it was a person. And people can be devilish. But it was a person that was going around Corinth that was really causing Paul some problems, some pain, coming against Paul, making accusations against him. And that very well could be. We know that when Paul was writing to Timothy, that he would name a couple guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that had brought a lot of problems to Paul. Others say, no, it isn't that. It wasn't a demon or a person, but it was a physical infirmity. And to me, that's what I think perhaps it could be and what the text is indicating because it's a thorn in the flesh. We have good reason to believe that Paul had some kind of eye disease. He talked to one church. He said, I know that you love me and you were willing to give to me even your own eyes, implying that his eyes were not working so well that it was painful, that the eye disease. And we've talked about that second century document that was found that gives a physical description of Paul, and it says that he had runny eyes. And Paul says in another place, you see what large letters, I write to you. The implication very well could be, I, I want to write large letters to you to make sure that I can see what I'm writing to you and getting my message across. So it very well could be that the thorn in the flesh was some kind of eye disease. We get hints of that as we read perhaps the epistle to the Galatian believers, as he mentions it. It caused Paul to have runny, oozy eyes. It would be very painful to him. Others have said that, that he had some kind of form of malaria. Paul had splitting headaches and, and migraines, and we don't know for sure. Some suggest that that's what put Paul down on his second missionary journey when he started out. He wanted to go up into Asia, but he could not go. He's prevented. He was flat on his back. Perhaps migraines that kept him. And then he had that vision of the Macedonian man that said, come over here, and that's where Paul and the missionary team would go. They would go over to Greece, to Macedonia, to Philippi. So maybe that was his thorn in the flesh. 
It could be just very well that he, the thorn in the flesh was the injuries that he received, the scars, the physical damage that was done from that stoning that he received in Lystra that would leave him with, with physical damage, certainly permanent damage. And not only that, but remember what Paul wrote in the previous chapter, that he was beaten with rods, that he was flogged five times, 39 stripes on his back. So the physical damage by that and all the problems that Paul went through. So he had this thorn in the flesh. And it's interesting that the word thorn is more than just a, a rosebush thorn that pokes you when you grab it. The word here, thorn, the root word means a tent stake. A rather large tent stake that would be at least a foot long in putting up and staking up a tent. And of course, Paul was a tent maker, wasn't he? And usually those stakes were more like 18 to 24 inches long. Now, when we go to Israel, and those of you who have gone to Israel with us, right outside of Jerusalem, when we go from the, the Jordan Valley clear up to Jerusalem uphill, you begin to see those nomadic people called Bedouins. And they're out there with their tents, and they're all over the area of the Middle East. They're in the Negev Desert there in Israel. They're over in Jordan. They're in Saudi Arabia. They're in Egypt. And, and they are ones that they live in tents. They live pretty much like they did clear back in the days of Abraham. The only difference might be is if they can hook into a power line, you'll see that, and then they'll have an antenna sticking out of their tent so that they can have some power and watch a TV or something. But it's interesting, as, as we're, we're going up, the last time that we were in Israel, that our tour guide, Ronnie, he was telling me that it's the women that will take down the tents when it's time to move. They will pack up the tent. They will set the tent back up. The women do all the work when it comes to setting up the tent in which they live in. The men, they take care of the sheep. They take care of the goats. They decide when it's time to move. But they probably, the men, could not set up a tent because they've never done it. That's just part of their culture. It's been handed down not only for centuries but for millenniums. And we may actually, it's interesting, think about this we may actually see indication of that clear back in the book of Judges. Remember Judges chapter 4, the Old Testament? There was a woman there in Judges chapter 4 by the name of Jael of the children of Israel. And it was at that time that Deborah was the leader, the judge of the children of Israel at that time, and, and along with Barak, and they routed the Canaanite army. And Sisera, who was the general of the Canaanites, fled, and he ended up running into the tent of Jael. And he yells at her. He says to her, hide me, cover me up with this rug. And if anyone asks if I'm here, you tell them no. So J.L., she says, okay. Covers him up with the rug, and there he is. He's lying real still. The general of the Canaanite army, which had just been defeated. And as he's laying there real still, hiding under that rug, all of a sudden J.L. goes over and tiptoes over there and take his, takes a tent stake and a hammer, and just nails them right through the temple. Just nails them. She knew how to use a hammer and a tent stake. So Paul here, he's referring to something that would be very painful, a tent stake, that was sent my way after this glorious revelation of heaven. This tent stake was inflicting me painfully. Now the question is, why would God allow this? 
Why would he allow this thorn in the flesh, this pain to come to Paul? Again, we don't know specifically what it was, and there can be all kinds of debate, there can be all kinds of discussion, but I've come to, to understand and to know this. I'm glad that Paul doesn't write what it is. I've come to the point, after reading this over, to where, Lord, I'm glad that he doesn't say specifically what it is. Because whenever I go through some pain, that I have a thorn in the flesh, whether it's a person that's the source of that pain or the enemy who wants to bring me into defeat and despair and depression and, and discouragement, or whether it's a physical infirmity, whatever it might be, that, Lord, I can relate to what Paul's going through. And we can relate to what he's going through. So why would God allow us to go through and have thorny problems and pain in our lives? And I think that we need to stop and, and we need to consider the text carefully. And the reason is because there's important application for us this morning. I believe that as we look at this and as we continue reading that there can be three reasons that are listed here why God allows a thorn in the flesh to come into our lives. And again, these may not be the only reasons perhaps, but Paul gives us three good reasons here why the Lord allows painful and thorny problems to, to come into our lives. We see that in verse, in verse 7, number 1, for you who like to take notes, the first reason that this thorn in the flesh was given to me, verse 7, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. In other words, the Lord allowed this thorn in the flesh, this pain in my life, to keep me from getting all puffed up, to keep me from getting haughty and, and boastful in the flesh, to keep me humble. Paul, you, you've had this incredible vision from heaven. Many of you, you've heard the, the saying, the reason that a dog has so many friends is because he wags his tail instead of his tongue. And I suppose that most of us would really wag our tongues if we had a vision like Paul did. So God was actually protecting Paul in a sense, keeping him humble to keep him from exalting himself above measure. We can become so prideful so easily. We want people to notice us. We want people to exalt us, to, to talk about us. And the scripture says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. If blessing comes your way and God has been good to you, and he has, he knows that our tendency can be prideful. Our tendency can be to be self-sufficient or arrogant. And he wants to protect us from that, from being puffed up and full of pride, because he knows that that will do us in spiritually. And he will allow at times a thorn in the flesh in our lives. We think that we're really something. We think that we're really great and, and I'm so spiritual, look at me. And then someone comes along and puts you down. And it humbles us real fast, doesn't it? Lest I be exalted above measure. So that was reason number one, perhaps. Paul goes on to write in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We say, Lord, why are you allowing this problem? Why are you allowing this pain, this thorn in my life? 
not only does it keep us humble, but secondly, number two, it causes us to pray. That thorn in the flesh will oftentimes drive us to our knees. Paul says, this thorn in the flesh came and I prayed three times that it might depart from me. When you, when I am dealing with something, an issue that isn't being resolved, a problem with a person, maybe a physical problem that we have, and it will often cause us to pray over and over and over again. It keeps us close to the Lord. It helps us be sensitive to the Lord, hearing from the Lord. Lord, why is this happening? And it will cause us to continue to pray so that the Lord will bring relief to us or perhaps speak to us. And that's what he did with Paul. He gave Paul peace and understanding concerning this problem, this pain. I don't know about you, but I'll speak for myself, but I think it's a tendency that can be with, with a lot of people. It's in those times when everything's going real well and real good. I have no thorn in the flesh to speak of. Everything's going well at home. Everything's going well in the ministry. Um, everything's smooth, and, and I, I, I can have a tendency, if I'm not careful, to kind of put it into cruise control. I don't feel the, the need or perhaps the urgency to pray as much. Maybe you can relate to that. I tend to get, maybe if I'm not careful, a little bit lazy about praying. And then I start to feel a little bit dry and distance with my relationship with the Lord because I really haven't been in tune with Him like I should be. You see, it's when I'm experiencing some kind of difficulty or pain, some thorny problem, then I find myself with, with an urgency to pray. Lord, and I'm doing it constantly and crying out to him. Paul prayed out not once, but he prayed three times. And please notice that the Lord did not take away this thorn in the flesh. And I think that it's worth noting here because there are those who will come along and tell you and me that if you're sick physically or you're going through some difficulty, if you pray and you don't receive healing, then you didn't have enough faith, that you lack faith. And it's heresy. It's not biblical. Paul prayed three times for healing, and the Lord said, No, Paul, I'm not going to take this away. And I think that Paul very much qualifies as a man of faith. We need to realize as believers that God has a right to say no to his children. Just as any of us who are parents, that we do say no to our children at times. As a father, I've said no to my children. And usually they don't like it when it, you know, we say no to them. But the reason that we say no to them is because we want the very best for them, don't we? We want to protect them. We, we, we want to, for them to, to grow up to be responsible. And we will say no to them. And, and no is very much of an answer to prayer, just as much as yes. God answers prayer. Know that, Christian. And sometimes people will say to me, well, God didn't answer my prayer. He does answer. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes it's no or wait. And there's a reason, and it's a good reason. It's an eternal reason. That sometimes and a lot of times we may not understand why God says no. But God's promises is that he will work all things out for good for those who love him who are called according to his purposes. And he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the implication is all good things. Those promises that God gives to us are true. And we can stand on them. And he'll be faithful to his word. 
and the Lord will give to us those things that are good. He's working for good. Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 and verse 32. And we know that he's going to give us the very best because he's already given us the very best. And that is his son who was delivered up for you and to, for me. And that was the ultimate good. He did not spare his own son that you and I can have forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven. The greatest thing that you and I can have. The greatest need is to be forgiven of sin and God's provided for that. And reconciliation with the Father and the hope of heaven through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's worked all things out for good. And we know that if we can trust Him with our salvation, we can trust Him with our lives now. And we may not understand how things are, are going to, to work out or what's happening, but God is working in the eternal perspective. You see, so oftentimes we look at it just in the temporal perspective. If God doesn't heal your loved one from that sickness, it could be that God wants to bring them home to heaven. He's working it out for good. And yes, we grieve on this side of eternity. We miss our loved ones and friends that we know that went on to be with the Lord. But God has worked it for good, and we're going to see them again. If the Lord says no in something that I ask, or promotion, or when it comes to something, it's because he has the very best for us. Maybe he knows that thing will hurt us. Maybe he knows that that relationship will not be good. Maybe he understands that that, that is, will bring harm to us spiritually, or he has something better for us. So yes, I do have faith that God can heal. I do come to him in expectation that he's going to work and heal and deliver. But if God says no, then I know that there is a reason, and I trust in him and I rest in him that it's going to work for good in eternity's perspective. And if I don't receive something from him, then it must not be good for me, at least at this time. That's the prayer of faith. And I think that many of us, that we have the testimony, that we have found out that no can be a very wonderful answer, that we've asked for things, we've agonized over things, and then the Lord said no, and now that we can look back and we can say, thank you, Lord, that you said no, because that would not have been good for me. That relationship. That, that thing that I wanted so bad because you had something better for me or you saw that it was going to be harmful to me. So Paul with this thorn in the flesh, this pain, Paul says it was to keep me humble so I won't get puffed up and full of pride. Secondly, it causes me to pray continually and constantly and to wait on the Lord and know that he will give me peace and understanding just like he did with Paul. Hey, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. How was God's grace sufficient for Paul? It was making Paul stronger. Paul's desire for this thorn in the flesh to be removed, but instead of removing the thorn, the pain, God made Paul stronger. He strengthened Paul. God would show his strength through Paul's weakness. The third reason that God allowed this thorn, this pain, to be in Paul's life so that Paul would realize that God's grace is sufficient for whatever infirmity that he would face, and that we can also know that God's grace is sufficient for whatever infirmity that it is that we face. You see, after Paul writes this letter, he's going to go through a whole lot more infirmities. He will go to Jerusalem, where the whole city is going to riot over Paul. They're about ready to tear Paul apart, literally, when he's rescued by the Roman guards. He is taken into protective custody, and, and and there, there's a plot by the Jews to kill Paul, so they take him over to Caesarea. And there, he's in jail for two years, going through this legal nightmare. 
he ends up going to Rome because he appeals to Caesar. And on the way, he once again is in a boat that is shipwrecked. He floats around in the Mediterranean Sea. He washes up on the shore on the island of Malta where he's bitten by a poisonous snake. And then he spends two years in prison in Rome waiting to go on trial before the emperor. After that trial... When Caesar Nero lets him go, he's let go for a short while. We don't know exactly where Paul went. Most likely he went up into Europe, maybe into Spain. Nero orders the rearrest of Paul. He's taken back to Rome. He's put this time into a horrible place. And we read about that in 2 Timothy. The last words that we have of Paul that are penned in the New Testament. And Timothy, he writes to him, Paul does, My departure is at hand. My departure is at hand. Be diligent to come to me quickly. There's not a whole lot of time left. Timothy, Demas has forsaken me. Haven't loved this present world. Luke, oh, Dr. Luke, he's with me. Timothy, bring my coat. It's cold here. It's damp. And when you do come, can you remember to bring the parchments, especially the parchments? And all have forsaken me. And then as Paul, as he ends his letter, the last words that Paul would pen that we know of, he writes, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached, might be preached fully through me. May the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And then he writes, Grace be with you. Amen. And he puts down his pen. And then Caesar Nero takes Paul out and he chops his head off. Paul was a champion of grace because he knew of the grace of God. And he knew that grace was sufficient for him because it expresses God's acceptance and pleasure in us and that unmerited, un earn favor as God's children. It speaks of his love and approval and favor in God's eyes. It means that he loves us. And I can sense that Paul could really feel this response from the Lord. Paul, my grace, my love is enough for you. God's grace could meet Paul's needs and it will meet our needs as well because it's available at all times. He said, my grace is sufficient for you right now. Not that it's going to be someday, but right now at this moment, it wasn't that grace was sufficient at one time, but now at this moment. And His grace is sufficient for you, for me, on this day. For whatever thorn in the flesh that you might be experiencing. For whatever the enemy has to throw at you. And then grace could meet Paul's need because it's the very strength of God. And it's the very strength for you and for me that comes from God. Paul says, I'm boasting in this. And he was showing those at Corinth who were boasting in their own strength and abilities and parents and finesse and sophisticated speech. Paul says, I boast in God's grace given to me. That's why I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God was making Paul completely dependent on him. And that is what he desires to do with us. I don't want to live five minutes outside of God's grace in my life. I want to depend totally on him. You see, what can happen if we're not careful, Christians can kind of think that real maturity is, is when we come to that place of being somewhat, you know, somewhat independent, 
hey, I have my act together. I know the word. I've been a Christian for years. Uh, I've worked in ministry for a while. Uh, and, and everything I go through, pain or difficulty, uh, I am realizing that it makes me totally dependent on God. And when I go through the trials and difficulties, I realize that I don't have it together as much as I think that I might. I'm not as, as together as I think that, that I like to boast in. But going through the difficulties, it helps me to see God's grace and love and faithfulness once more being worked out. And that in those times of trials and tribulations and pain, whatever it might be, that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. That I'm strong when I'm relying on him and his grace. And those thorns in the flesh are to make me stronger, not to make me weaker. They're not to do me in, to just pull me down, but it's to build me up and make me stronger in the Lord. And then Paul says something quite remarkable, and we'll end with this in verse 10. He says, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. He says, I take pleasure. Can I be honest with you? I'm not quite there. <laughs> I'm just being honest. To take pleasures and difficulties? But I am realizing more and more that God will use those times, those thorns in the flesh, to mature me, to make me dependent on Him, that I don't boast and exalt myself, that it causes me to be praying to Him continually, to experience His grace that is sufficient for me and whatever problems or difficulties or thorn in the flesh that comes my way, to make me stronger to make me stronger. You see, that's what the Lord wants to do in our lives. So when the hard times come, and they will, I know that God's going to work, His grace is sufficient, and that He's faithful. And He will show His strength when I am weak. So Father, we thank You. We thank You for this time in Your Word. And I pray that this morning, as we gather in this place, that this would be a great encouragement to us because sometimes we don't know why we go through the difficulties, but Lord, we can fall back on the things that we do know. And that is you're still working and your love remains, your faithfulness. Father, we know that you're going to give us the very best because you've already given us your son. Jesus Christ who came to this world to die for us on Calvary's cross the wonderful, great news of the gospel, good news, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again after three days, put, being put into a grave. Father, I pray that all of us, we've embraced the gospel. But I do want to give opportunity before we come to the communion table, because coming to the communion table is recognizing as believers what Jesus Christ has done for us in going to Calvary's cross. As Jesus, in that upper room the night before he would die on the cross, they, he made that new covenant with his believers, with his disciples. He said that this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat the bread and, and drink of the cup which is my, speaks of my blood that will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. That's what he did for each and every one of us, bearing our sins upon himself. As Jesus was taken and he was struck, 
that there were those stakes that were driven through his hands and his feet for us individually, specifically. And if there's anyone hearing this message this morning that you've never surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved by grace through faith. It's unearned, unmerited. You come by faith, believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, what he has done for you on Calvary's cross. And you have opportunity this morning to say that prayer of faith from your heart as the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. If you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It comes by repenting and turning away from the world and turning to Christ and surrendering to him. Open up your heart to him. He loves you so much. He wants to give you not only forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven, but bless you in this life now as well. If you've never received Jesus, you can pray in your heart, Jesus, I come and I pray right now. I open my heart to you for you to be my personal Lord and Savior. And I confess that I am a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross for me and that you were put into a grave and you rose again, that you're alive, knocking on the door of my heart, and I open my heart to you. Thank you for dying for me and loving me. Thank you for your incredible grace, because alone I know I can't stand before you in righteousness. But thank you for imputing righteousness to me as you wash me clean by the blood of Jesus. 